Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. We're coming to you from Tourisiar in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation. I'm Anthony Dockwell. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Thursday last week, the federal government released the fifth intergenerational report. The report is a detailed look at what Australia might look like 40 years into the future by projecting current government policies against prevailing trends and challenges. Treasurer Jim Chalmers said last week the report sets out the choices that will determine whether we succeed or fail in the years ahead. Chalmers also expressed a sense of optimism, suggesting that we possess the ability to shape the future to our advantage. The media for its bit has been giving the report a high degree of coverage, but has focused almost solely on the tax burden of younger Australians and our changing demographics. The real story of the report is the pressure we will all feel from climate change. But far from being a document of doom, the report actually paints a positive future for the Australian economy if we and the world choose a carbon neutral future. To discuss this, we are fortunate to have back on the program Professor Roy Green. He's a Special Innovation Advisor at the University of Technology, Sydney. Professor Roy Green, welcome to Think Business Futures. Hello, Anthony. Now, Professor Green, the Intergenerational Report is, of course, a huge document, and we can't go through all of it here in half an hour. So we're going to concentrate on two areas in particular, productivity and climate, and how they'll feed into the industries of the future. But before we get into those details, I'd like to get your overall response of the report. Well, this is the fifth report since the Intergenerational Report was begun several years ago. And again, projects into the future 40 years ahead, and who knows what 40 years ahead is going to look like. But it's a useful exercise because it concentrates people's minds on the priorities of the day. The interesting feature, really, of this report is that those priorities have changed somewhat because when the report was under the custodianship of the Rudd-Gillard government, it began to focus particularly on climate change, and then that kind of disappeared into the rearview, rear vision mirror under the last government, as we all know, and now it's made a reappearance. And so when we speak of what are the real issues for the next generation or several generations It isn't just that we have an aging population. Of course, we do. It isn't just that a smaller group of younger workers are going to be supporting aged care for people like me. (laughs) But even so, with aged care, the burden may not be as big as people imagined, thanks to superannuation and the fact that people are working longer. So that one perhaps was exaggerated. And it isn't just that we have declining participation in the workforce and all of those other things that are looked at from the point of view of the labour market and immediate economic challenges. The biggest intergenerational issue is, will the next generation have a planet to live in? That is the big issue. And the good thing about this report is that that priority, overriding existential priority is recognised. That's a very important point. And and of course, we'll unpack that one in in great detail. 
It's probably worth noting here the intergenerational report started in the Howard government. It was Peter Costello's initiative. Yeah. And what was really interesting and the reason why I'm bringing that up right now is that back then, one of the major concerns was how Australia is going to be able to afford to pay the pension in the future. That problem has actually disappeared probably showing the, the the importance of the intergenerational port where a problem can be focused on and long-term planning can happen. So climate, of course, is something that probably is a little bit more complicated than pensions. So look, we'll, we'll get to that, but so let's talk about the, the changes to productivity that, that are mentioned in this current intergenerational report. Now, you've, you've been on Think Business Futures only recently talking about Australia's need for innovation and an increase in productivity growth. The current intergenerational report assumes that there's actually going to be a lower level of in, of productivity growth and it's, and it's put the figure down to 1.2%. What did you think of that lower assumption and what do you see that how that feeds into the kind of Australia our children will be living in? Well, unfortunately, that's a much more realistic assumption than was made in the last report, 2021. It recognises that productivity growth has slowed or completely stalled. The assumption previously was that it would grow at 1.5%, or at least that was the that was the assumption that lay behind a maintenance of our living standards. Anything less than that would mean that our living standards might be compromised. The assumption now is 1.2%, and our living standards are compromised. The problem, however, is these are not just abstract figures plucked out of nowhere. These are based on the fact that we've had policy indolence for the last decade. Productivity was simply not addressed. In fact, more than a decade. And our lower productivity, part of that's the global phenomenon. Part of it's due to the lags in the deployment of technological change across industry. But it's very largely connected to very narrow trade and industrial structure. All our eggs are in one basket, that is the export of unprocessed raw materials, particularly iron ore and coal, and now we're seeing some activity around critical minerals as well. But all of it is about a lack of value add to whatever we dig up or grow and send to someone else overseas. This is really the problem that underlies what may be a decline in our overall in the growth of our of our prosperity over the next couple of decades unless the action is taken unless the policy measures are taken to revive our productivity particularly via investment in research and innovation so that we become a more knowledge-based economy and capture more value from the from our critical minerals, uh, as we see those becoming more important from some of our other raw material exports, and to replace the fact that some of those raw material exports won't be happening in 15, 20 years. The projections on coal, for example, is that in 40 years' time, we'll be exporting 1% of what we do now. In other words, it will entirely disappear off the radar. So those are the big questions for addressing productivity. And it so happens that yesterday we find very graphic evidence of our failure in this space in the 
in the data that has just appeared on Australia's investment in R&D. And it turns out that when we were talking last time about the decline in our R&D as part of, as a share of our GDP to 1.79%, we couldn't have guessed, or at least we didn't know, that in the next set of data, which has just appeared, it would have declined to 1.68%, which is about half of where the current Labor government's aspiration is at 3%. It's just over half of the average of OECD countries and other countries, Korea, Israel, Singapore, Switzerland, are all aiming for 4 to 5% because they see investment in research and innovation as the key to their future prosperity and growth and the living standards to which they wish to become accustomed. If we don't apply ourselves with the same sense of commitment and urgency, we will see ourselves falling further and further behind those countries we want to compare ourselves with. And that's, I think, one of the underlying messages in this intergenerational report, that Australia may end up in, you know, in the year 2063 as a, a larger but also poorer country. Well, we know, only need to think of the fate of Argentina. It, at the beginning of the 20th century, Australia and Argentina had about the same amount of GDP per head. Both of us were among the richest countries in the world. Australia went in a different direction. It applied an industry policy of a sort to build our infant industries. Pretty much everything was made here behind high tariff walls. And we combined that with a so-called conciliation and arbitration system. In other words, a wage determination system that kept people's wages up and gave them this productivity growth that was then occurring. Tariffs became counterproductive by the 1970s, 80s, because the cost of the goods we were buying here was far in excess of those produced more efficiently abroad. And so we had to recalibrate. But by that time, we had built up a very significant industrial base. And we did that in the context of very focused uh, nation-building institutions. Argentina didn't have that. It was open to exploitation by imperial powers even more so than we were. They didn't have the institutions to turn that around, series of military dictatorships and so on, and they ended up among the poorer countries of the world. So it just goes to show the right kind of policy decisions, the right kind of institutions, and the right kind of positioning in the the global economy is absolutely critical to our future prosperity and indeed the sustainability of that prosperity, the sustainability of our economy in every meaning of the word. And if we don't take the necessary actions, if we just fiddle at the edges, as we've been doing for some time now, thinking that the solution to everything is somehow lowering corporate tax or tweaking the industrial relations system, we will have avoided the central issues of our time. Let's talk about some of the the warnings that are in this report before we get to the opportunities. 
Unlike the intergenerational report of 2015, climate plays a major role in this report, and the report paints different kinds of Australia that we could be living in, and depending on the actual degree of warming that the planet experiences, but it looks at different scenarios from a sub-2 degrees increase, a sub-3, and and then over 4. This kind of warming, and, and in, in case of the worst-case um, scenario, Paints a picture of of productivity and economic activity that is that that is falling. Were you alarmed by what you saw? Oh, it is alarming. We have the choice right now, and this relates to the policy point I was making before, of being a global renewable energy superpower or a stranded asset. Uh, the choice is entirely in our hands because we have all the necessary energy sources here, uh, sustainable, zero emissions energy sources in solar, wind, batteries, hydrogen, putting all of storage, putting all of those things together, we can build a very cohesive and powerful energy grid that could even bring back some elements of manufacturing that we've lost because we will be able to secure potentially lower energy costs than most other countries. Or we can allow ourselves to drift and not invest in those measures that address climate change and accelerate the energy transition. And then when the world doesn't want our coal, and we're also part of a global warming that produces huge costs on our economy, uh, we will have nowhere to turn. And so the choice is ours, and we need to make those decisions now if we're to avoid potentially apocalyptic future. Now, some say that this is going to cost a lot of money, and of course it will. The, the investments required in renewable energy sources is absolutely huge, and it requires an approach to public-private partnerships on a scale we've never seen before. When you th- think of investments in, in offshore wind alone, they're, they're eye-wateringly uh, huge. But um, they're not just costs. The point is these are investments in our future, and they are investments that will produce a return uh, in an economy that we all would like to live in, as opposed to the kind of economy that is described uh, in the intergenerational report and indeed by international energy and climate observers as being one where the conditions become impossible to sustain life. And the report does paint uh, a picture if we don't act, like they're talking about up to $423 billion in lost economic activity, much lower productivity in manufacturing, in agriculture, tourism, uh, so uh, like big hits to the economy across the board. But you did talk about the, the opportunities that are here for Australia, and the report is very clear that there are enormous opportunities if the world is going to transition to a, a net carbon zero position. The world will need rare minerals, it will need a whole lot of need green hydrogen, there's a whole lot of opportunities here for Australia. So it actually is not necessarily a depressing document if you actually read it and realize that we have the time, we have the opportunity, we have the resources to seize these opportunities. 
Um, That's right. I think, yeah, it's a call to action. It's essentially a call to action and not beyond time. In fact, the report covers the field really with eight reform priorities. It's been criticized for not having a bold reform emphasis, but I think that's a bit unfair. The Treasurer and the authors of the report have emphasized pretty clearly where the priorities lie, and he's listed eight of them, essentially. The cost of living, which of course is pressing on us now, Budget discipline, well, that appears in every document, and we have to look forward, I guess, to increased expenditure on NDIS and aged care that needs to be found. And, you know, the the good part about what's going to happen in the next few years is that the actual increase in, in expenditure as part of GDP need not be such a, a burden, especially given that uh, net debt is also projected to reduce. So that's number two. Third is transforming the energy sector to a net zero economy, which we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, connected to that, developing a better trained workforce, broadening and deepening the industrial base. As I said, absolutely critical because we have an outdated, narrow industrial structure and uh, we need to uh, broaden that by developing knowledge-based goods and services and that requires investment in R&D and uh, innovation. Next one is leveraging capital and lifting investment. Obviously, that's associated with all the above. Designing more efficient markets because, of course, monopolies uh, tend to suppress innovation and as well as consumer welfare, and we need to address that through competition policy. And reforming institutions such as the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Productivity Commission, well, that, and that's very well taken. The reforms to the RBA haven't been all that game-changing, but we're certainly looking forward to some reforms of a more significant kind to the Productivity Commission, which has pursued an agenda that has led us to the kind of industrial structure that we currently have, as, as described in the Harvard Atlas of Economic Complexity. Number 93 out of 133 countries in terms of its diversity of its export mix and research intensity. And we're somewhere at the moment between Uganda and Pakistan. That's not where we want to be. That's a, look, that's a very interesting list, and we'll, we'll touch on some of that very soon. But one of the things that's obviously missing from there is taxation reform. And it's worth noting that you know Australia missed the opportunity to have a resource rents tax on what was called a once-in-a-generational boom caused by the growth of China. This report's kind of painting that there's a new resource boom coming, one that could even be far bigger than the one that we've just experienced. Is it time that we also have a a mature, serious talk about the tax mix? Yes, I think so. I think that's where we do find a gap in the reform ambition. And uh, Labor governments, all governments, have become much more cautious in that area because it's easy to whip up a a sort of populist frenzy against any changes to the taxation system ever since we missed the biggest opportunity, which was the imposition of a resource rent tax. Meanwhile, Norway has a resource rent tax producing $150 billion this year for it, its sovereign wealth fund, now the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, 
and it's able to do so with a resource rent tax of 76%, which has taken great advantage of the price hike for gas and oil over the last few years, last three years in particular, which we haven't managed to do. Our resources sector, especially gas, pays next to nothing in tax by comparison. Even Qatar has a, a larger tax element than, than, than we're able to muster here. So differential are we to some of these big international companies we haven't even taken the example of the Western Australian government of a few years ago, which imposed its own gas reservation policy on the gas industry. They were told the gas industry would not invest in Western Australia. The then Premier, Colin Barnett, was told these companies would withdraw from Western Australia and leave the state high and dry. Well, Colin Barnett said, OK, try me. And uh, the next day, they were back in his office saying, how much do you want us to pay? So you've just got to have a bit more ambition, a bit more courage. And that's what a reforming government is meant to have. So we look forward, I guess, in the future to that whole tax question being addressed again. And there are, that's only one element of, of it, of course. We have very high personal income tax in Australia as well. That's partly because we're not imposing these taxes on our resource super profits. And the response of the business community here is to say, well, why don't we reduce corporate tax and introduce a higher GST? Well, that really doesn't answer the question. That just makes the problem worse. Do you think the report is setting us up for a debate here? Because one of the, the takeaways that's come out of the intergenerational report is that there will be a larger obligation put on younger people to pay the tax burden that's, that's coming. Yeah, I think when people refer to this as the intergenerational tragedy, there is an element of that, although we shouldn't overplay it, in the sense that younger people will be paying higher tax. They're already paying much higher charges for university than people did in the past, paying much higher prices for housing and for rents if they can get a house at all. So they're really in a situation that the older generation did not find itself in. And the older generation is now looking forward to the younger generation to support its aged care and other requirements to ensure comfort in old age. The only compensating benefit really for the younger generation is that the older generation will, to some extent, take care of itself through superannuation and, in many cases, keep on working well beyond retirement age. So that may alleviate the problem in the long term, but the problem is still there and it's a hard one to address. But again, the tax system is an important part of it. Well, let's turn to the energy revolution. You've, you've touched on this already. Um, this is one area where Australia actually has a competitive advantage with the world. We have plenty of sunshine, we have plenty of wind, we have plenty of landmass to put a lot of this, a lot of this new technology into play. Do you see a time when Australia is not just, say, a hub for, say, things like green hydrogen, but also for green minerals? I'm thinking of like green steel. Could we be seeing a return of heavy industry to Australia? Yeah, absolutely. The first priority is to get the 
renewable share of the energy mix right up there. Um, the aim is 82% by 2030. We're not there yet. South Australia is probably ahead of the game there uh, at over 80% and sometimes 100% when the wind and the, and the sun are blowing or shining in the right way and they've added energy storage with, with batteries. There's still a long way to go in, the sto- in, in storage and hydrogen will play a part in that. But hydrogen also has other purposes and um, it can be used in the direction, direct reduction method in steel making, uh, iron and steel making, and so, and indeed with green aluminium. So there are huge opportunities there in converting the uh, renewable energy provided we have sufficient electrons to hydrogen and various byproducts of hydrogen like ammonia and methanol. And all of that will contribute to our energy transition. It will also, if we get the right scale and the price down to an adequate level, then we can also export hydrogen in various forms. That's been, that strategy has been knocked sideways somewhat by the US Inflation Reduction Act, which has introduced uncapped tax credits for and subsidies for hydrogen and other forms of energy production. But we can be very efficient in Australia and we can deploy maybe not the same level of public resources, but certainly sufficient public resources to ensure that we're competitive in this space. And we have the whole value chain here. Right now, we're in terms of critical minerals for battery making and electric vehicles, we're exporting, we produce 50% of the world's lithium. We export 90% of it in in raw form, and we capture only 0.53% of its final value. So surely we can capture a much greater proportion of that value chain. In fact, why not all of it? We can't do that with every critical mineral, but certainly in the case of lithium, uh, we have all the opportunity here to undertake battery production and production of EVs, in particular niche segments of the market, if not by local Australian companies, then in conjunction with international companies who would cite their investments here due to lower costs. Do you think that's uh, something that's been missing in, in this country that we haven't had a proper industry policy that's looked at looked at these key, I guess, opportunities, but also areas that we need to be moving into? That's what it all comes back to, because it is our industrial structure that is the problem. We've just allowed it to develop, driven by market forces and outdated theories of comparative advantage. We haven't pursued competitive advantage, which is based on knowledge and ingenuity, as opposed to comparative advantage, which is just given by whatever natural resources, natural endowments you happen to have as a country. We need to do some foresighting as to which are the areas in which we are or can be competitive. And we we move from there to a more coordinated approach to our economic and industrial policy. Right now, in terms of research and innovation, we have our spending spread over 13 different portfolios of government, 150 different budget line items, none of which connect with each other. It really is a very fragmented system if it could be called a system at all. And a Labor government can be expected, I think, 
a reforming government can be expected to take a step back and look at how this has developed over the years and recalibrate, reassess and commit itself to a coordinated, broad-ranging industrial strategy with key challenges and missions at the top and a network of place-based innovation ecosystems lower down that drive the process, drive our R&D and commercialization process forward by structured collaboration between industry, government, universities, and other research institutions, as we see in other countries around the world. Um, Germans probably are in the forefront of this with their uh, Fraunhofer system. The British have um, developed what they call the uh, high-value manufacturing catapults, uh, and the US has just introduced their uh, regional technology hubs and National Science Foundation regional innovation engines. So a lot of countries are into industry policy, but it isn't industry policy as people might have understood it in the past. It's not just about tariff protection. It's about how can we be globally competitive in various specialized areas of global markets and value chains. It's not a hypothetical discussion. I mean, you only need to look somewhere like Taiwan to see how important these policies can be. Look, I want to bring this back to the debate that's going on in the media. It's fair to say that the intergenerational port is, has had a, a fair degree of coverage by the nation's media, but the coverage has basically focused on the tax burden for younger Australians and the coming demographic changes. All, all these things are really important, but it, it does seem to me that the real story that's in this document has been missed. Have you been a little bit disappointed by the level of debate that, that's happened since the report's come out? Yes, it's been very narrow. Everybody thinks, you know, what's in it for me? What's going to happen to the tax system? The big picture, and the Treasurer, to give him credit, has tried to broaden the debate. He's tried to get the country focused on the big picture, but it's one of the failings of our media that the big picture and the long term only really feature if there's some apocalyptic point to be made. And so a few media outlets have said, you know, we're heading potentially for catastrophe without specifying exactly how this might be the case. And very few have put forward any kind of argument or uh, built on the argument in the report for what kind of policy measures need to be taken to avert that potential climate disaster. And um, that's really the, the biggest question for the next generation. The tax share of the, of the, of the economy goes up only marginally according to the projections over that third 20, 30, 40-year period. So it's hardly even worth debating because whatever happens in 40 years, it'll certainly be very different from where we are now. But at the moment, the projections are pretty much steady as she goes with even reducing net debt. The big change and the big challenge is all around how we tackle climate change and how do we undertake a coherent, 
well-funded energy transition where if jobs disappear, what kind of jobs can replace them? How do we structure the transition so that fossil fuel-dependent regions properly looked after and are able to reposition their own economies? These are the real questions. And some of the policy infrastructure has been put in place. For example, the government has now set up a net zero authority that it sees as overseeing the transition that must take place in many of our regions around the country. And this is all very positive, but it's it's costly. And as I said, the costs are also an investment. And the biggest one at the moment, apart from the private sector investment in those energy sources themselves, is in our national grid, because some big changes need to be made to our energy infrastructure over the next 20 to 40 years as well to support the change to a renewable energy economy. Professor Roy Green, thanks for being on Think Business Futures. Thank you, Anthony. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TRCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this program again or share it with your friends, just go to tourcr.com or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Think Business Futures will be back next week. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. 